Welcome to a, a Skype edition of Probably Science. I'm Matt Kirshen. I'm Andy Wood. We are joined by someone, someone I first met doing Robin Entz's science shows in London, friend of the show Robin Entz, uh, because he's a neuroscientist who also overlaps with the comedy world, and this is his second book. It's called Happy Brain, Where Happiness Comes From and Why. It's Dean Burnett. How's it going, Dean? I'm fine, thanks, man. Um, currently in Cardiff, where I live in the UK, in the middle of a heat wave, so I'm rather, you know, perspiring right now. So I'm glad this is more of a remote connection because it would be unpleasant for all concerned if I was there right now. I'm I, I getting all of yeah. I mean, it's uh, h- how hot is a Cardiff heat wave? What qualifies? Because I, I I'm seeing various messages, and Facebook posts, and the mm. like from my friends back home who are panicking on account of it having hit. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm currently sat in my my office in my garden. I've got a, sort of a wooden cabin. People uh-huh. call it a shed, but it's technically a cabin because it's built for human habitation and not for general storage. That's apparently the definition. Uh-huh. But uh, yeah, I have lots of uh, acoustic soundproofing tiles put up, stuff like this, and they've actually melted. Uh, you know, quite a few have dripped off the walls now. So that, that's bad. You know, that's, that's a bad time <laughs> when it comes when it comes to heat. Yeah, and your, your utensils start melting. For a book about happiness, I was surprised about the lack of mentioning of uh, air conditioning. That would be an entire chapter uh, yeah. in my book, I think. <laughs> well, yeah, it's not something we, we we don't have it here because 99.99% of the time it's cold, wet, and dark, and we don't uh, air condition is not a priority uh, outside of cars. And uh, oh, I, I, you miss it when you need it. You really yeah. do. <laughs> well, I, I I do remember from my the majority of my life living in the UK that if it hits anything even close to the sort of mid twenties, everyone just walks out like everyone just leaves work people just walk outside mm. they leave they stop mid operation like whatever it is they happen to be doing and then just go straight to yeah. the park and- <laughs> yes and and odds are okay depending on no, as they get if they're men as they get older and slightly more overweight the, the odds of them taking their top off will increase dramatically it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a very curious <laughs> phenomenon um we'll, we'll get into the book in a second but i i also want to talk about because you've been you, this is your first time featuring on this podcast, or sorry, appearing in person on the podcast, <laughs> but you featured on this podcast in the past because numerous articles you've written for, it's mostly The Guardian, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. Have ended up being quoted by us because you have a hat. I don't know. You, your main field is neuroscience, but that you sort of get brought in to explain slash debunk any kind of science story that vaguely overlaps with the brain. Essentially, yeah. And given like how the brain is involved in literally every facet of human endeavor, then that end means I've got a wide remit when it comes to discussing things that happen in the wider world. And yeah, like it's a, it's a strange relationship I have with The Guardian. It's like they host my blog, essentially. So the brain flapping blog is my creation. And I get to say when I put post up and things. So I do, I would say, well, this has happened. I can yeah. Take the mick out of this if you like, and they go okay, and that's basically what happens. Uh, so yeah, so I, I've uh, I've dabbled in a, f- a few ways. I've, I've sort of become like the science whisperer in many ways, and that I can sort of speak it for for the layperson rather than. I mean, I'm not good at any of it, but I, I do have a, I do I do have a knack at relaying <laughs> well, it in, in terms. Your your background, you go into your background a bit in the book as well, but your neuroscience is your is your academic field. Yeah, both um, undergraduate and postgraduate, a BSc and a PhD in neuroscience. Um. Like, do you still get involved in any research these days, or are you all on the uh, communication and popular science world? 
Well, I've, I've been freelance since March, actually, because uh, the, the NAT side of things became a bit more demanding and sort of became a lot more time-consuming than the basic hobby I thought it was for a while. I assumed I'd be chugging along in the corners of academia for the rest of my life, you know, being largely overlooked and ignored and you know, just not bothering anyone, and that didn't happen. I, I've been, I've, I haven't actually done any research directly since uh, finishing the PhD. I've always been a lecturer-tutor type person and always been more about talking about it than actually doing it because, I mean, I, I, I stressed this before, I was never actually that good at doing it. I I just I know enough <laughs> to do, be able to speak it. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I think uh, I think that this was crystallised the moment when I was in my PhD when I was running an experiment and the results came back and it was just they were just dreadful results, absolutely awful. <laughs> and and I actually I arranged to speak to my tutor, my professor, and uh, my sorry, my tutor, my supervisor. And like I was on it's, it, it, uh, the Carter Psychology School is like a it's like a tower building, so it's like eleven floors. I was on the tenth floor and he was on the fifth floor, so I was going to go down to the fifth floor to give him the results. But I needed the toilet on on the way, so I went to the toilet and if you ever tried to unzip whilst holding results, it's actually <laughs> I, had them, I had to hold them under my chin, sort of do that thing where you hold them, put all the papers, and yeah. so I unzipped and uh, you know started urinating and um, coughed and uh, blah blah blah, pissed on my own results, <laughs> and that was. That was bad, you know, and uh, for, for a few seconds, I didn't think I actually put them in the handwriter to see if I could dry them off in time. Don't don't actually give these to your supervisor, Dean. Go back upstairs and print a new copy. So I did. I took them back downstairs. He said, you're a bit late. Where were you? I said, well, um, long, well, no, I'll be honest. I pissed on my results. And, <laughs> and I showed them to him and he said, oh, yeah, <laughs> I see what you mean. And that was uh, that, that's, that. that's the quality of my science. <laughs> so, you, so you switched more to the blogging and writing. Well, like, I think the last time you got um quoted on our on our show was um an article fully explaining the many levels of bullshit behind and this is this this story keeps resurfacing on our show the head not a head transplant oh god yeah (laughs) that's something i get roped into a lot because i've done that a few times now and uh it's um it's annoying you know it keeps coming uh what's his name again Canavera. the name thinks he's gonna do it yeah 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 I mean, like that head transplant's been imminent for like six years now, and uh, it's always in the next fight. It's, it's like the light speed barrier; you're ever so close to it, but you can never actually reach it. <laughs> and but because I did that article, but it lasted. It went, it went sort of. I think I was one of the first, or maybe that I had the highest profile way to take that on, saying this is ridiculous. Stop, stop repeating this. This guy's you know complete self promoter. And I got asked to lots of different, you know, I on lots of radio shows, and being the guy saying this isn't. It isn't a thing. He's 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 not telling. He's, he's not done a head transplant. He's swapped the heads on a corpse, which is like you know. He said it only took nine hours. Yeah, but I said, give me ten minutes in the stapler. I could do the same thing. <laughs> <as you wanted." laughs> For all the corpse notices. And um, but then I end up so I spoke to I think I spoke to a Brazilian person like a, from a for a Brazilian article and I end up being cited as Dean Bennett, an expert in raising the dead, which I think, well, <laughs> that's a new one. That's going straight on the business card. I'll be honest. <laughs> I mean, in a way, you're I, you're as much of an expert as anyone. Yes, I have actually spent a lot of time on the dead. So, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> well, you that's a job. I want to stress that. <laughs> yeah, you 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 go into that in the in the book. You talk about your your cadaver time. Yes, uh, for those who don't know, uh, between undergraduate and uh, postgraduate degrees, I uh, decided I didn't want to be one of those people who just does constant studying. Like I didn't want to be get formed that cliche of being person who can't face reality. I thought I should get my hands dirty, and I got them extremely dirty by most people's standards and spent two years embalming and cutting up corpses for a medical school, which was as fun as it sounds. What's the purpose medically to embalming? I thought that was mostly for just burial and, and people's desires uh, yeah, well, to have 
in this particular circumstance, it's uh, for medical training medical students, so um, medical and uh, anatomy students, and even the neuroscientists get the brains in the end. So, person that donates their body, um, it's technically for science, but it's for student training. So each like a group of five or six medical students, or maybe nine or ten, if there was you know, a shortage that year, would be allocated a body, and it's been fixed, it's been preserved with um, sort of It's a formalin phenol sort of com- cocktail, and that sort of body lasts for the full nine months of the of the year before the summer break. And they spend like several hours a week in the theater dissecting it and looking at the actual organs because they may end up being surgeons or they may end up, you know, they need to know the anatomy to be a decent medic. And yeah, that was the purpose that people donate their bodies to, to us for okay. being I, fixed and help. I, I heard one of the reasons as well where, um, the, one of the reasons medical students also practice on cadavers is just to, Accustom, my, accustom themselves, like to get over the mental block on cutting into someone. Like definitely, yeah, to it's, a plan- it's a huge part. Of that. Yeah, because it's, it's very, it's very hard. Like there, there, there are a few physiology practice, like stitch practice, in which you use like pork belly, and that was another an interesting because the texture is kind of similar. You know, yeah, I think tattoo artists apparently practice sometimes on on pig skin. I've heard that's a thing that new. I think so. Yeah, I feel that. I also hear that. Uh, Barbers for their final exam have to shave a balloon. And I thought, where do you find my first question? Where do you find a hairy balloon? <laughs> Who's making those? But but also, I think one thing that really helps is the psychological hurdle of confronting death. Because you know, when you're a medic, you're going to see people die. If you, I mean, even if you're a GP, you lose patients. And right, it was it's odd because that's odd. It's perfectly predictable. But surprising, how often it happens that these are medical students. These are students who have worked the hard, as hard as they possibly can to achieve the best possible marks to do medicine. And you know, we have several hundred students every year, but we always lost two or three who just came in and said, I, I can't do this. I cannot face a, a, dead, a dead body. It, it was too much for them. And they just washed out there and then. And it was, you know, you think someone who's worked that hard to get there, but you know, some people just can't clear that hurdle. And I guess medicine isn't for them. Right. Yeah, I'm not sure I could ever totally get over it, but I guess humans will get used to anything given enough time. Habituation, as you mentioned in the book, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This and is that a- was my problem. Yeah, yeah. Well, let, let's get into the. I, we'll put up a link as well to the article that you wrote about Canavero and his. <laughs> Thank you. And also coined Burnett, Burnett's law. Uh, yes, I, I stand by that. Yeah. What, what is the law again? Um, someone's making grandiose scientific claims and they haven't published any data, but they have done a TED talk. You should be worried. <laughs> or you should. <laughs> If TED Talk comes first, then like, all right, what are you selling and how much is it and how much is going to cost mankind? <laughs> I mean, but his only, or not his only, his most outlandish claim is just that he can reconnect the spinal cord, right? And what's the main hurdle to that? Um, well, he doesn't, uh, well, I think he, he claims he can do it with some special gel, but it's it's not a simple process. You know, right. someone else's spinal cord is, your nervous system develops in accordance to your experiences in your life. And there's no sort of, you know, it's not a, it's not a Lego set. You can't just connect one bit to the other. It's mm-hmm. involves millions, millions upon millions of intricate connections, and and also involves repairing neurons and nerves. And if, when they cut, they don't tend to re- grow back together. And that's one big hurdle in medical science, anyway. So, if he can do that, if he's figured that out, then he should share that because that's really quite important. That's <laughs> right. Gonna, that's going paralysis alone would be would be cured forever. That would be quite nice to know how that works. So right. if he's got something which can do that, then yeah, that I w- say medically he would be. That's a fair <laughs> point be because if if you have the ability to successfully connect a donor's body to a head, one person's mm. body to another person's head, that also means you should have the ability to connect someone's own body to their head. In the case of a yeah, spinal cord yeah. severing, 
Yes, and also you should, you know, also he should also obviously fix the problem of organ rejection and you know, immune responses. So he solved like about a dozen major medical hurdles in this one process alone, if it's successful. So he, hopefully, if he is telling the truth, he would he would tell us about that because that's kind of selfish to not he, to not share that. If he already has, he might ha- he might be the first like multiple Nobel Prize winner for like the same <laughs> yeah. multiple yeah. citations for the in the same year. You get so you yeah. get four Nobel prizes for medicine this year, and we just hold yeah. off for the next four years for anyone else. But yeah, I get how that works. Also, Marie Curie yeah. did, a, did a TED Talk first, right? Isn't that how she started? Yeah, yeah. she she went she yeah. went TED Talk, then physics, then chemistry. They were her, those were her three big awards. Oh, the triumvirate, yes. I mean, I think <laughs> if he has got that, they should just give him the Nobel Prize for literature as well. Just, just give him the whole suite. <laughs> on the that, off chance, too. That, to be honest, this. is the one that he might have the better chance of winning <laughs> right now. <laughs> yeah. well, he, he, he does spin a lot of good fiction, in, in my opinion. Yeah. That's uh, sound right, I can say that. So let, let's let's get let's get into the book because it it's sort of the book is ostensibly an investigation of where happiness comes from and what makes people happy, but it's that's almost sort of the framing device to learn about the brain and and how humans behave. Uh, so Essentially, you, yeah, yeah. That, that that was like my initial premise, and sort of like where can I go with this? And yeah. the book is what I ended up where I ended up going. And it sort of takes it take the book also takes the reader on your personal journey, going from like idea to idea and meeting people and getting how you absorb these ideas. But you you start off as rather sensibly as a neuroscientist, you start off with the chemicals in the brain. Uh, mm. So. Yeah, what 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 are the the chemical the brain chemicals that are thought to be involved in happiness? Well, the main list that I've sort of based on everything I've read, it's um dopamine, endorphins, or beta endorphins specifically, um, oxytocin and serotonin. And th- there is a sort of scientific basis for all of these. I'm um, not saying that they they aren't involved, uh, in that you know, serotonin is what's restored or like boosted when you take SSRIs, the most common antidepressants. So logically, using that you know, basic uh, basic observation, then serotonin must be involved in stopping you being depressed in some way or it seems to be involved in mood regulation. Its actual role is many and varied. Right. Um, oxytocin, the, the quote-unquote cuddle hormone, clearly quite heavily involved in forming strong emotional bonds between two individuals. Um, originally, Said to thought to evolve to facilitate the mother-child bond upon birth and breastfeeding. So, mothers are incredibly bound to the baby because not just because, but the oxytocin in their system is really high, and as a result, they form these strong, lasting maternal bonds. Uh, But then evolution seems to sort of taken that and applied it to uh, in humans, at least general relationships like kin and like families and friends and stuff. So we have strong emotional bonds with other people. Uh, something we can do quite well, which is again get into that a lot. I know um, endorphins, uh, the you know, obviously the classic, the, the the natural opiates. So some estimates I found that endorphins in the brain are five times more powerful than heroin, which is quite a claim to make. You know, it, it surprises some people. Like we have apparently the, the idea that we have in our heads a chemical five times stronger than the most powerful narcotic. Is disconcerting. You know, makes you wonder why we get anything done. Uh, just, yeah, when just... you're like, oh, I could just yeah. make. So just yeah. being pinched for a bit would produce something <laughs> yeah. in my body that's better. F- that's a yeah. be- that's a bigger rush than the thing that people are being murdered over. 
Yes, exactly. And, uh, you know, why aren't we all sat on the floor twitching and dribbling a lot? That's, um, well, some people <laughs> are, that's, that's fine. But um, again, the, the, the gist I get is that the brain uses it very sparingly for stopping incredibly stressful, uh, painful you know, occurrences like childbirth, like, like when, when you run a marathon, the, the runner's high, as they call it. I think I use the reference in the book um, or the comparison to saying in, endorphins, they do cause pleasure, but they're not, that's not their main purpose. They are to stop pain and severe stress so mm-hmm. saying endorphins are like a happy chemical it's like saying a fire engine is a machine for making something wet because it does do that <laughs> but that's not that's not what it's for that's not its purpose right and oh and dopamine is the main one which comes up a lot because that's the part that's the chemical or the neurotransmitter which the reward pathway in the brain the source of all sensations of pleasure at the most basic level that's a dopamine pathway that uses dopamine uh, to function but you know so then you get all these Articles and claims and sort of you know, books are saying, what you got to do to boost the dopamine levels? Or if you do this, you click this thing online, it boosts your dopamine. And to boost your dopamine levels, you'll be much happier. And the sort of the example I, I use is like, it's very easy to boost your dopamine levels if you are that interested. You get need to get hold of some Levodopa, the, the medica- medication for Parkinson's disease. Uh-huh. Because Parkinson's disease uh, is where the substantia nigra, that degrades. It's another part of the brain. Don't know why it degrades. We think it's in with protein tangles, but we can't seem to stop it yet. But that's also a part of the brain which uses dopamine to function. It's involved in uh, sometimes some aspects of mood regulation, but obviously it's a motor control uh, part of the brain. And it runs on dopamine. And taking levodopa stops like the depletion of dopamine in your brain and body. So the, your dopamine levels go up. But because pills don't work, they're not localized. It, it happens globally. So dopamine levels are boosted throughout the entire brain when you take Parkinson's medication. And I know several people with Parkinson's disease. There are many ways to describe them, but in a constant state of bliss isn't one of them. They're not, you know, right. boosting dopamine levels doesn't make you intrinsically happy. You cannot take a bucket of dopamine and feed it to a lobster and get a happy lobster. I mean, that's a weird analogy. I don't know why I use lobsters there, but that's the thing. And I, the thing I sort of, um, after reading them all, like there's so many articles about claiming how to make you happy and things. The ones that cite dopamine and chemicals and, and neurotransmitters, it's a weird comparison, but are you aware of the um, 1984 Dudley Moore film Best Defense? No, I'm, I'm not sure I am. <laughs> no, I think I saw it on Sky TV once at a very late night. Um, it's a, it was a Dudley, Dudley Moore vehicle. He plays a uh, sort of a womanizing weapons designer, a very relatable character. And the film like tested, and it was it flew. Their test audiences hated it. They thought it was rubbish. And at the time, Eddie Murphy was at his height, at his peak. So they sort of filmed the whole extra 20 minutes of the film with Eddie Murphy in sort of an unrelated part, but tied in the main Just to weave him in, right. Yeah, essentially, they they, they brought in Eddie Murphy because he was credible at the time and made made it an Eddie Murphy film. And that's how I feel about these happiness articles invoking science. Like, you just... You're looking for a high-profile cameo, aren't you? You just want to boost some credibility here, saying, I'm talking shit, but I've right. got scientific terms, so it's, it's real shit. Well, you, you, know, which, you um, often get these articles about how, uh, like, chocolate effects uh, or any or watching a film you like boosts. Is it dopamine? Or, mm. uh, it, I mean, this is even yeah. something you, you mentioned later in the book, is just when people talk about X changes the brain, well, ev- everything changes the brain. Just ev- yes. every stimulus that the brain receives, whether it's just seeing a flower or smelling a new smell, good or bad, changes the brain. Yeah, that's essentially that's, that's the brain's main strength. It's a flexible organ. It's plastic. It adapts. It forms new memories, which ergo is a physical change because it's all about synaptic connections. It responds to things. It you know it changes different connections. It changes output. It changes levels. So the brain is a constantly changing organ. So say something changes the brain, 
it's like saying like oh I, I i ate this thing and i increased mass well yes you did that's how it <laughs> yeah. works so that that that's not really a, that's not that's not a useful statement that's, that's it comes back to that with the the brain chemicals about happiness it's it's such an abstract thing it's like, like people keep asking me is it all about chemicals well yes technically but at you know, at that level everything the brain does is about chemicals it's it, it's it's an organ composed of a vast array of complex chemicals arranged right. in certain ways right. and back and forth. Because right. you also, in, the, in these early chapters, you talk about the sort of the weird ways that um, antidepressants do and don't work as well. Like they, they're, mm. Even when they do work on people, it's not an immediate reaction in the way that you'd expect if it were a direct correlation between these chemical levels and brain happiness. Yeah, exactly. It's um, antidepressants. They know like that, that. That feeds back into the the chemical imbalance theory of depression, or the, the claim that depression is just caused by a chemical imbalance. And I had a lot of uh, friction about this earlier this year. If you were aware of that, that was a fun time. And it uh, it it's it, it's almost a. It's not been debunked, but that's that's it's it's known in the it's known in the psychiatric field as the monoamine hypothesis because neurotransmitters which seem to be lacking in depression are of the monoamine class. You're talking your noradrenalines, your dopamines, your um, serotonins. These are all monoamine chemicals, and antidepressants boost these levels of these anti of these um, neurotransmitters again. But because the way the chemistry works, they boost them pretty much straight away. But the consequences and the beneficial effects of antidepressants aren't usually felt for a good three to four weeks. Um, well, at least the, the beneficial ones, like the side effects are kind of sooner. So that are, that begs the question, what is it they're actually doing to right. improve someone's mood or state of mind? Like it's clearly not just increasing the neurotransmitters because that happens right away. It's clearly a more gradual systemic effect. And what exactly that is, is still kind of up for debate. Yeah, that that's <laughs> sort of a controversial thing, right? Yeah, I don't, I don't know if we should get into that or not, but yeah, I've heard that the the overall effects of increasement increasement of the increase in someone's happiness on SSRIs <laughs> is is somewhat comparable to like a good night's sleep, for instance, or like on the Hamilton scale of depression. And I don't know if that's a controversial finding, but yeah, well, it varies from person to person. But there's a right. huge meta-analysis recently about you know, the efficacy of antidepressants, and technically, SSRIs, the most common type, are you know, according to the data, the least potent, the least they have the, the, like the smallest beneficial effect, but they are the best tolerated. They also have the fewest side effects. So, like it's a it's a little and often approach. And if they don't work, then there are other types available. You got your tricyclic amines, you got your monoamine oxidase inhibitors. So these are all different types of antidepressants. There's quite a few available out there, but they all have different side effects, different effects, different consequences, and the type of depression you're manifesting determines what kind you use and what what kind are recommended for you. And again, it's, they're not just a magic bullet. They don't just take them, you're cured, right. go home and you know, think about what you've done. Uh, <laughs> it's more, you know, it's, it's, it's a wide spectrum approach. It also helps you, you, know, you sometimes you just take the edge off a bit so you can make the life changes which would be more helpful or you know, beneficial to your situation. So yeah, they, it's, it's a much more complex picture than the simple boo antidepressants or yeah antidepressants right, right. That, that often pops up online. Uh so okay, so then you you go from there to start start investigating what specific outside factors can have an effect on on your brain and your happiness. Mm. So, for example, your home environment. Uh, mm. Sorry, guy, just interrupted you. What you were saying? No, I'm, I'm, I said yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm disagreeing with you. <laughs> That's the it's the problem with working over Skype, where suddenly you're like, ah, yeah. is that a thing? Okay. Um, 
Yeah, so w- what did you find? Let's let's just go into that. What did you find about? Because again, this is a, f- a fairly complex picture about what what about people's home environments makes causes happiness or increases or or reduces happiness. Yeah. Um, once I sort of looked into this, the, the basic scientific aspects of it, like you know, is it is it a happiness chemical? Is it a happy bit of the brain? Which I sort of pulled. To do a bit of a behind the curtain, um, I, I sort of knew that that wouldn't really work, but I wanted to look into it as if it did and see what you came out with, because I, I know it's more complex than that. You, you have fundamental like, sort of individual bits of the brain for basic processes like memory, like sensory processing, like auditory things, like like language centers, but something as abstract and almost subjective as the feeling of happiness or any other mood is going to be a, more of a dispersed system is going to be more widespread throughout the brain there's going to be constant lots of different bits working together or you know in at different times right so that's yeah so i, I sort of knew that already because not that bad a neuroscientist because yeah, <laughs> this is yeah. sort of a constant theme of the book as well in that sort of happy how much of this comes from the sort of more conscious and processing parts of your brain and how much of it comes from more instinctual and subconscious mm. parts of the brain yeah and then that's, that's like a theme from my, from my first book idiot brain in that there are different parts of the brain constantly working against each other. And like there are, the, there's the quote unquote reptile brain, the part of the brain we've had for like millions of years of back, back, back to dinosaur times, if you want to push the analogy that far. These are the fundamental parts of the brain which everyone, every species to a certain extent has, you know, the, the parts which keep us alive and keep us running and keep us surviving at a purely subconscious instinctive level. But the human brain sort of became far more complex and far more conscious. Um, relatively recently in evolutionary terms over the last two million years and that's you know that gives us all this great brain power we have and these cognitive abilities but that sat on top on top of the old system which is still there it hasn't gone away it still works still doesn't right. need to do but that, that's a very rapid expansion of all these abilities trying to integrate with the lower regions and the analogy i like to use is have you ever tried to install windows 10 on a five-year-old laptop it, it doesn't really like it. It's not right. quite, you know, it, it, it'll work, but it won't enjoy this. It won't enjoy yeah. the arrangement. It's like, I don't like you. You don't like me, but let's try and get this done. And that's going on in our heads a lot. Like, it's like the old systems and the new systems going, what do you want? Get, get out of my way. This is not, this is not how we do things and so on and so on. So, yeah. So that was like a big part of that. So, um, and also, so fly, yeah. sorry, go, uh, go for it. Uh, so, I was, so within that, you sort of talk about a, a lot of why your home and your surrounding environment is important is to yeah. do with your sense of both familiarity and security. And like I hadn't, there's even things like, um, you said some studies even suggest we can detect and recognize threatening stimuli faster in a familiar environment than in an unfamiliar one. Yeah, that was the, the sort of big part of that because the reason I looked at sort of homes and other things is because I, I sort of looked at happiness as being far more complex than just a simple brain region and process. And I thought, well, I think people recognize that you know, the, the whole cultural understanding of happiness seems to be quite, you know, quite, quite varying, quite diverse. So what are the things that make us happy? First thing I looked at was you know, home, home is where the heart is. And that's all that sort of, um, all those cliches, is it any truth to them? And it seems like there is, uh, partly because our homes meet a lot of our biological requirements. And we, all our food is there, we sleep there, you know, all our stuff is there. Mm. So it's, it's by association, it sort of makes us happy. Um, but it's like it's like it's that familiar environment, it's that sense of security, which is another fundamental mm-hmm. biological need. And homes satisfy that. It's like this is my space. I know this is safe here. It's basically those parts. It's not just about the reward pathway, the part which causes pleasure being kicked in. It's also about quieting down those threat-detecting parts of the brain, which constantly look for 
stresses and dangers and worries and concerns. Right. And these parts are kind of suppressed in our home environment. Not suppressed. They, they turn down quite low because basically the subconscious brain just looks around and going, right, I've been here many, many, many times and at no point have I died. So you no longer have to be on, yeah. on edge when you're home. Yeah. But but then yeah. <laughs> but then here comes the fun part as a, it, throughout the book. It, it, the constant flip-flop in this book between like, oh, the, oh, okay, so this is it. But on the other hand, the more yeah, secure thing, and comfortable yeah. the place is the fewer hmm. exciting stimuli they are and the brain also needs excitement and variety to stay happy right yeah and that was um no that i realized that when i spoke to um a journalist from brick underground the new york real estate place and i think i made it clear that i wanted to speak to someone who like works in homes uh, in a place which is very much in demand uh, clearly got you know, the supply and demand of homes in new york is higher than in most other places it's very sought after and at some point there all these things apply to London as well they could have just gone there but you, you could very yes yeah. exactly the same is true of uh, of like East London uh, or South London yes. where it's um, where many many people want to live but it's far from peaceful idyllic tranquil mm. place people like people who I'm a Londoner. I grew up in Lon- I grew up in the, like in the London suburbs, but I I'm very much someone who I like busy cities and I like to be somewhere mm. where there's a lot of noise, but obviously also less safety and less comfort. <laughs> yeah, and okay, all all these things apply to London too. But as I said, to, I think it was my editor who suggested it that as a UK resident who lived here all my life and has never lived in London, I am sick of hearing about London. Quite frankly, <laughs> dominates the London house prices. I know more about them than I do about most of my own relatives, and that's really quite something. So you know what? No, I'm going to talk about something else, anything else. So I talk about New York instead. And you know, it just the idea that yes, you can have a quiet, safe home, but it's nice to have that. But that's not all you need. You need far more than that. So people will happily sacrifice a big sort of big roomy spacious home in the middle of nowhere for a small place in the middle of somewhere and you know because what homes do is you see this mouse experiments too they provide you a safe place in which to retreat to in which to know that that's there and which you can explore the wider world so like they've done it with mice and if you put a mouse in a completely new environment they will usually be stressed they'll sit there shivering like i don't know where i am this is scary i don't like it if you allow a mouse to explore a new place from their familiar place, so you put their home cage in a new box or something, then they will happily, well, far more happily, go out and look at things and sniff things because, well, I, I don't know what that is. I want to find out, but I know I have somewhere to go. I know I, I know I have a safe place I can retreat to. And that's, another, that's something which homes do give us and at an instinctive level. We have this, I want to, dis- I want to explore the world, I want to see what's going on, but I also want to... You know, I want to know that I'm not in danger. I want to have somewhere to retreat to, and and that's one argument why homesickness is a is an evolved human instinct to make us not enjoy being cut off from our safe environment. It's something we we far away from home. We can't get back there very easily, and that causes a psychological distress a lot of the time. And that's right. You know, that's an evolved thing to and, make us safer. And I guess why some people who do get homesick really cling to a few like mementos from their home. All right. Mm. Or food, like yeah. you know, people people like you know that sort of cliche of going to Spain and then finding Marmite in the supermarket or something like that. Just suddenly finding <laughs> some semblance of oh, they got Jaffa cakes. All right, I can enjoy this place now. Yeah, I've got a few friends who've just moved to the states and put up a picture on Facebook of like, importing Yorkshire tea or Heinz beans, and I'm thinking I got these in the cupboard. They're probably expired by now, and I didn't realize they were <laughs> valuable commodities. Yeah. I could have sold them on. But. There, there, there is because I, I, I live out here in America. I live in Los Angeles, and there is I, I, I have a sort of 
love-hate relationship with the sort of the British diaspora here, the the, the sort of Brits in LA group of people. Because on the one hand, it is useful. It's nice to ha- know that community is there, and also they're full of useful information about how to exist as a foreigner in America. But on the other hand, there is a sort of I I, I feel like oh I, no, I want to be in LA. I don't want to sort of be in a <laughs> a, a British island within. Yeah, are there a lot of like, American-themed bars in London? Where they try to recreate whatever the typical There's, American bar is. There are a couple. I can think of a few. There's, yeah, I think I've seen a few. Well, I mean, like, yeah. I mean, some of the bigger chains. Really. There's like TGI Fridays in Piccadilly oh, okay. Circus. I don't think anybody like misses TGI Fridays when they leave the U.S. <laughs> I don't know though. I think you would be surprised how many American tourists there are, in, like, or in the Hard Rock or things oh, like that. God. But yeah. Uh, um, that's a, yeah, that's always the weirdest thing. Is like when I'm talking about weird, but it's it's when you go to a foreign country deliberately. You know, no one's making you go there. You go there, and the first thing you do is go, "Oh, I want to go to that place that's around the corner from me." That uh, okay, well, yeah. fair enough. Like, that, that why did you come all this way? Yeah. <laughs> that always used to be the thing that you know that sort of generally. Oh, that that it that Indian restaurant has a lot of Indians eating in it, so it must be good. Like, is it or are they just Indian <laughs> tourists who are very unadventurous eaters who just saw? <laughs> Saw the cuisine and thought this is like the equivalent of eating a McDonald's when you go to uh, uh, Brazil. (laughs) But your McDonald's is different. You guys have better stuff over there. Mm. I went to Malaysia. They give spicy sauce with all their food. That was brilliant. They they do like that. That's a big McDonald's thing of just having like one or two menu items that are just have a vague nod towards their local place. (laughs) A very very subtle assimilation. That's why they get the big bucks. Yep. Uh, <laughs> Definitely. So you also talk about um, speaking of the sort of contradictions of novelty versus familiarity. You talk about the various ways that work can or cannot make us happy. Like everyone thinks that the goal of life is to, not everyone, but you know, you would think that the goal eventually is to retire so you can stop working and then you can be happy. But that's uh, obviously not as simple as that. No, no, no. It's not. It's um, that, that was one thing which kind of intrigued me. I think I fall down from the looking at homes because. Although our home is a big important part of our happiness and our sense of well-being, more often than not, it's our work which determines where our home is. You know, we don't pick a home and then find a job around it. Well, not often. Right. Um, but it's more common to you know, find a job and then have to find a home nearby, especially in science and academia when you constantly bounce around countries chasing the next available grant, which is a, a stressful existence for most, I imagine. Right. And. Anyway, I, I never got that far. <laughs> got that far, so I can't really comment from personal perspectives. But um, but it is, you know, it, it's an important part of life. You know, we, we spend a good chunk of our waking life working, and you know, the, a lot, one thing people often cite as a key part of happiness is the work-life balance. And but I, again, I, I think I've done this in a lot of my talks, but that that phrase alone, if you look at it logically, it does put work at a disadvantage. It shows it in a negative light because on one side of the equation you've got life, which mm-hmm. is your life. The other side, you've got work, so which is logically not life. So work is a state of waking death. Right. Yeah. And <laughs> that's, yeah. I mean, I, I, I've, I've said that to quite, in quite a few talks, and the number of people who look at me and go, "Yep, that sounds about right." It's like no reaction. It's just like, "Yeah, that's exactly yeah, what it, it is." Yeah, it, it does certainly. From that that expression, suggests that work, you only work the minimum that you. Everyone would only work the minimum that they need to work to get the lifestyle that would make them happy. That, yes, that, that's what the term suggests. And I, based on what I found in, in the book, there's actually sort of like a brain circuit which does predispose us to that sort of thinking, like the um, the insulin link to the anterior cingulate gyrus, I think, but it's the part of the brain which monitors and sort of um, predicts uh, likely rewards, likely outcomes, 
against effort required to achieve it and essentially determines is it worth it i think i i dubbed it the is it worth it circuit um uh. no one else called no one else calls it that but i did i thought that might catch on better um <laughs> it, it, we are we are predisposed to that to sort of look at what's this task in front of me what what will i what will i get if i do it and how much do it does it cost me to do it and what's you know is it worth bothering about i think the example like it's an evolutionary thing because like the example i used imagine like a predator pursuing a small shrew for like 12 hours solid they finally catches it they get, they get to eat it but they've spent a little, far more energy on finding the damn thing than they have about they have from, from consuming it so they've got a net loss there so that, that, that's like a bad survival strategy so we have this instinct to do like the bare minimum required in order to achieve the necessary rewards and that seems to be that seems to be different in many different people like some people can't idle at all they'll do anything just to keep busy and some people are the exact opposite i lived with a guy once who thought you know doing the dishes was a form of psychological torture which which is not i'll point that out but um yeah, yeah but he, he didn't like he didn't, what's the point i'll just get some new dishes that's, what, <laughs> that's not how it works that's not how anything works. also those are my dishes so you know that's um you know it becomes a it becomes a difficult thing uh, uh, but yeah like we are disposed to that but then so that's how, like, you know, we, obviously there's many, many exceptions to every different rule, but yeah, uh, if Brian, you look at the basic, yeah. Brian Regan had a story, I think it was in his last special or the one before it, I don't know if you've ever seen any of his comedy, but he had a story about when he worked in a in a bike shop or in a, in a some kind of store where one of his jobs was assembling bicycles, this is his job when, a kid, when he was a kid, and one of his co-workers just said, hey, follow me, and they followed him, and he's just in this crawl space between the walls, the guy went, you just stand here. <laughs> You can stay here for hours, and they don't know you're here, and you don't have to work. <laughs> Probably like, I think I'm just gonna go back out there and do the bike thing. <laughs> oh, yeah, that sounds less preferable. For some reason, in my head, I thought it'd be like a millhouse. Like this is when I come to cry. <laughs> <laughs> but it is. I, I think yeah. that that's a sort of perfect illustration of just for some people that that guy is mm. could not be happier. He hasn't had to assemble any bikes, and all he has to do is. Stand between two still. layers of plaster, yeah. very still for Stick now. It to the man, <laughs> spending eight hours a day just in perfect silence, not doing anything. <laughs> but but for other people, that's not. And and people have varying levels of the amount of work that the amount of work that makes them happy. Definitely, yeah. Like there's some people will only be happy if they're doing the bare minimum. Some don't idle well some people just like really do want to keep busy like they they love just being engaged or anything they I mean, I don't, know, don't get the whole introvert extrovert thing because that's a thing that's an oversimplification but some people do love to be constantly engaged and doing something because like, their brains are sort of well, quote unquote wired that way and um, that, that that becomes a sort of a problem in the workplace like, if you can find a job where you're given things like which the brain responds positively to things like uh, autonomy and the sense of competence uh, these are things the brain responds really well to. These things make us happy. If we have a job where we have, we get to say what what happens. We say, well, I, I, I'm going to do this today. I choose to do this. I'll do that. And, you know, a sense of confidence. I'm going to do this well. I'm good at this because I can see from the outcomes of my work. These things tend to have a positive response in the internal workings of the brain. Um, so that's one way in which jobs can make us happy. But it's also a long-term thing in that we can, because we have the brain power to do it, we can form ambitions and long-term goals. And, Jobs right. which help us achieve those tend to make us happier. Like thinking, right, I am working towards my goal. I am approaching my ultimate goal. I'm getting closer by doing this. So Right. So this is a point where yeah. like the sort of heavier processing part of your brain can overrule a bit where they can go like this bit sucks right now, but if you if we muscle through this eye on the big prize, we we gain enjoyment from 
projecting what will happen in the future when we attain this next target, this bonus, or the the house that we can buy with the money from working at this level for several years. Yeah, exactly. You've got the frontal cortex parts of the brain, which do all the really good, complex and intricate long-term planning stuff. And you've got the more limbic, the more central parts of the brain, which are more impulsive, more short-term gains, more hedonistic. Like, I'll eat that. I want that. Example I always use is like you, you, the one part of your brain thinks, right, I want to be a professional athlete. So I'm going to go to the gym a lot. I'm going to train a lot. I'm going to avoid any fatty foods. And that's going to make me happy. Because the other part of your brain is saying, but I like pizza. I like pizza. I, I can I can order pizza now and, and just eat it. And I'll be fine. You know? And those parts of the brain are kind of in conflict. And whichever one wins depends on how much self-control you have, what, what, what the balance is between the two. And that factors into your work as well. Like, So if you have a job which can make you uh, sort of sense that you're approaching your goal better, then that will make you happier. So if you want to be an astronaut and you end up having a job as a pilot, that's good. You know, I'm, I'm a fighter pilot. This is, you know, most astronauts were pilots, pilots, pilots at some point. <laughs> uh-huh. And um, so like, that's good. That's a good part. You could cream. But if you want to be an astronaut, you end up being a barista. Not quite the same thing. You know, there's a lot of high pressure hoses involved, but that's pretty much the only comparison there. So, yeah, so that, that would be a frustrating job if you wanted to be an astronaut, but you're serving coffee instead. Again, nothing wrong with being a barista, but it's not quite on the same pathway as astronaut. And, uh, the, the, yeah, we recognize these things. And you talked a bit about how we're able to convince ourselves that we enjoy things that we might not have thought we did, like to resolve cognitive dissonance. If you end up in a job that's not the one you were aiming towards, you can still sometimes convince yourself, oh, I, I actually enjoy this more, and I, I didn't want that thing I thought I wanted before. Yeah, yeah, definitely, because like, the brain's very egotistical. It's uh, We are necessarily so a lot of the time because we we need a sense of confidence. We need a sense of assurance that we are making the right decisions. Otherwise, we're just crippled by paralyzing fear all day, every day. You know, like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. So we always, we have a lot of cognitive biases which make us feel that we are uh, you know, good at doing something correctly. And but one thing the brain doesn't like is disparity between what we're doing and what we actually believe, what we think. So if you make you, know, you make a decision, I want to be an astronaut, and you end up being a barista, then you, you know that's not your goal. So you can sort of see that being frustrating. But if you're like pushing 35, 40, and you've not made no no headway to being an astronaut, you're still serving coffee or you know, working on the road or something, that's at some point your brain's going to have to say, right, I want to be an astronaut, but nothing I've done is leading to me being an astronaut. <laughs> so either I become an astronaut in the next two hours, which seems unlikely, or... I'm gonna to have to sort of shift what I actually want, what I actually believe. Um, I mean, this is, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of anthropomorphizing. It's weird to say I'm anthropomorphizing the brain, which technically it's, shouldn't be a problem, problem because it, it pretty much is this. So that um, yeah, but you know, I'm, yeah, but I'm just trying to explain it in that sort of term. But the brain's going right. I can either change reality or I can change what I think. And I can't do the first one, so I'm going to do the second one. And actually, actually, no, I, I, I think this is a good job. Actually, I'm doing some solid good work. You know, you can kid yourself that your initial ambition once you once you finally realize that you're never going to achieve it you can kid yourself that actually i never wanted that really i'm, I'm happy with what i've got so the brain always does take sort of weird shortcuts and yeah. cop-outs if you want to call it that well, to, to maintain a sense of positivity when it's working normally well that leads quite neatly into a bit that i want to talk about because because uh, you start to progress far more into how the brain how our brain is affected by interactions with other people towards the middle of the book but then but one of the big things early on is the avoidance of shame and that feeling and the thi- mm. uh, and just generally the avoidance of negative feelings 
And uh, yeah, I'd love, I'd love if you could talk a bit about that, how that is wired in our brains. Yeah, it's um, one of the things which surprised me actually was the extent to which we are such social creatures. I knew we were anyway. I've always made a sort of point to that, that we are a very friendly species. Um, I mean, it, it, to say, it doesn't look like that if you watch the news at any point ever or spend up to 16 seconds online. It does look like we are vile and hate each other. But I think you're looking in, in mathematical terms, like there are 7 billion plus people on this planet. And given how many of us there are, we hurt or attack each other surprisingly rarely. And uh, so like if, you had a, if, if somehow right. tomorrow every human on the earth turned into a chimp, like there were 7 billion chimps on the planet, give it a week, there'd be 4 billion. Give another week, there'd be 2. And Because they don't get on well in large groups like that. They, they, they do not socialise well yeah, that beyond was, a certain group size. There was a quote in the book that I, I loved on that exactly on that note about how much how much more social animals we are. Um, he said, uh, if you give a chimp a banana, it'll focus on the banana. Like, I like bananas. Mm-hmm. But if you give a human a banana, they'll focus on you. Like, why is this person giving me banana? Like, what do we want? Are we banana buddies? <laughs> I enjoyed that. That was quite fun. Yeah. 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 So, like, we are, socially, we are socially driven. And that's one of the theories which I came across that that's the why we have such massive brains and such powerful intellects anyway, in order to cope with being in a large, complex social group. And it's an interesting, it's really interesting theory in that when, because human, human tribes became too successful, ecologically dominant, it's the ecologically dominant theory, in that when you were born into a human tribe at some point, the normal pressures which shaped evolution of a species no longer applied. So you don't have to worry about predators, so they, you know, they're no longer evolve speed or strength or defenses or camouflage because the tribe takes care of predators and they're not going to come near a human tribe. You don't have to worry about finding foods like with extra sensory, like extra smell sense or big eyes to look things out or wings to cover like distance because the tribe feeds you. It keep, keeps it keeps on. And also the sexual evolution, like it's obviously that's a big part of us, but it's not as dominant in some way. We don't evolve massive antlers or really weird plumage because we don't, need, we don't need to attract mates from long distances or find them like seek them out because they're all around us i mean there's no guarantee they'll have sex with you but they are there <laughs> so you know, that's that's half the battle and you know, so all these pressures which not drive other species and change their shape and their outcome and how they how they look and act and behave and work they didn't really apply to us anymore what apply what drove our evolution then was performance and sort of position in the social group so the ones who are the smartest who could maintain the most friendships who could you know, be the best leaders it's not all good the ones who could lie better that was a, a major milestone in human evolution the ability to deceive other people that was that's quite an intellectual feat just to say something to be able to communicate a message which isn't your actual intent i know a lot of camouflaging creatures do that and predators and stuff but consciously doing it is quite an intellectual demand and right. we evolve these abilities and that's what shaped this and as a result our brains uh, are hardwired to be social on many different levels and also do and as you say that the brains are also do everything they can to avoid rejection yeah rejection is but technically if you look at it that way back in the you know, two million years ago or so like we we uh, being part of the human tribe was essential for our survival. Like we were we were born far too young. You know, we were actually born far too vulnerable. Like, like I think I mentioned towards the end of the book, human babies are far more vulnerable than pretty much any other species at, at birth. Yeah, that you sort of talk about the fact that a sort of a, a newborn horse is already just trotting around, whereas a newborn baby is essential for yeah. months, if not years, is entirely dependent on the adults around to prevent to feed, clothe avoid predators like every part of their life is entirely dependent on the parents yeah so being part of you know being accepted by the, your group is literally a matter of life and death 
And as a result, any species which you know, fears, you know, that species which fears rejection at the basic fundamental level, that's going to be a good survival trait. As in, I don't want to be rejected. I don't want anyone to dislike me. I am, I really, really don't like that. It makes me feel uncomfortable. That's a good survival strategy to make them really hate the, the mere possibility of rejection. And we, like, we have evolved emotions to to, to to encourage that. Like embarrassment as an emotion is entirely dependent on our interaction with other people. I think, the, I think the example I use in the book is if you're in the bathroom and all your clothes suddenly fall off, that's weird. It's not embarrassing. <laughs> it's like, oh, I was going to get in the shower anyway, but I don't know why that happened. But okay, I'll just just go with it. Right. If you're in a hotel, in a hotel lobby, and that happens. That's no, that's the worst day of your life. That's mortifying <laughs> because you know you've been exposed. You you didn't want this. You're embarrassed. People are looking at you. Yep. I, and everyone's judging you. Yeah. I still I still look back and cringe on just stupid things that I, that I said to someone twenty years ago. Plus, <laughs> I, I still remember. A conversation that they probably will have no recollection of. Like, probably didn't even register as even a thing that happened in their lives. And if it did, it just it was gone from their brains five minutes later. But I still, I still dwell on these interactions three decades plus later. Definitely, yeah. It's such an intense emotion. It's basically your brain telling you, right? You know that thing you just did. You know how bad that was. You know that that, that was like the stupid thing you could have said. Do not do that again. And that is what your brain said, right? I'm gonna put like I'm gonna put the highlighters on this memory. I'm gonna frame it. I'm gonna put it up there. It's gonna be it's gonna be well lit. It's gonna be spotlit. I'm gonna write it on the side of the moon. That's what I'm gonna do. You are never gonna forget this because, quite frankly, that was appalling. Right. And that, that's what your brain's telling you. Like, don't do that. Oh, uh, well, this it, we're jumping all around the book, but uh, this does connect to two things that are involved that connect directly to my life because you talk quite a bit about humor both from the side of receiving it and also you talk to comedians and um mm. and just whatever mechanism goes into doing stand-up comedy which is my job uh mm. and also you talk about fame and the effect that has on people and the sort of connection uh you sort of you interview charlotte church in the book who american mm. listeners won't necessarily know but she was well, a I think she was she was big enough she was, was she big enough yeah yeah, yeah so mm. she she's she was a child star for those people who don't know whatever generation thing she first came to fame as a as a kid and was extraordinarily famous and now has sort of transitioned to a, a successful adult career as a contemporary musician. But, uh, the effect that having adulation has on someone, which should, which should by all accounts from the initial hypothesis be wonderful. How, you know, human connection and being liked by people is good. Therefore being liked by millions of people should make you the happiest person in the world. But obviously mm. it doesn't. No, it's um, it does make you happy a bit. I think it's again, it comes back down to the complexity of the brain in that it's not a, it's more a qualitative thing than a quantitative thing. I think I say something about money. Like human beings are cognitively complex enough to recognise that if someone gives you money, then that means you have something useful. Like it, it's biologically relevant. I have money. I can afford food. I can afford shelter. I can afford water. I can afford whatever I need to survive and to maintain my uh, current state of being. So we recognize money as a valid reward. So you, you give a rat or a pigeon like $5 and they just look at it and maybe peck at it. They won't have a clue what, what you're doing. They might just take it with some bedding, but it's not going to have any sort of relevance to them. Whereas we can make that intellectual leap. And the same thing with fame seems to, like, yeah, it triggers the reward pathway in the same way. So you know, when someone approves of us, when we have a positive social interaction with someone or someone likes us in a sort of visible and clear way, that does cause a, a brief burst of pleasure it does cause activity in the reward pathway the whole dopamine thing again so 
we are primed for that, even if it's you know, if it's fleeting, if it's just like a casual glance from a stranger. And I think that's why social networks have become so popular because you can quantify and see and get liked and acknowledged and respected or just approved of by so many people now, right? Uh, you know, in a good way, in a good way, but um, but also always. in a bad way. You you talk uh, that uh, yeah. again. We're jumping all around the book. You um you talk towards the end of the book about uh the fact that humans also gain pleasure from negative interactions and that might also yeah. explain some of what currently is going on in the world with the fact that we are inherently tribal and also we we are wired in some ways to enjoy other people's misfortune yeah it comes out to stake this a lot of the time it's not just no it'd be nice if we were just a social creature and just like other people liking us and wanted to be liked in turn that's all like you know yeah that's all that's all like the age of aquarius free loving stuff that's, that's nice but it, it doesn't work that way as we know um, because we're also concerned with status. We don't want to just be liked. We want to be respected, looked up to. And we want to be superior to other people. And not necessarily in an aggressive way, but in a sort of, I don't know, even if it's like keep it up with the Joneses, or I want that promotion and you know, that means other people can't have it, or I want to be the best at this. I want to be the best. I want to win. These are things that make us really happy. But logically, for us to win, someone else has to lose. And otherwise, you know, there's no there's no point. Otherwise, it doesn't mean anything. The whole everyone's a winner thing annoys people, and for this reason, because it, it devalues the whole concept, really. And that's something that seems to be quite hardwired into us. When we are low status, it causes feelings of extreme stress and psychological you know, discomfort. And when we are high status, it causes a pleasure response. It does cause activity in the amygdala. It's something we really quite you know, evolved to respond to. But you know, now, because we're so interconnected, there are so many of us, there are many ways in which to feel superior to someone else in the eyes of a like-minded group. And not all these ways are pleasant. They are quite unpleasant. And that's one thing why people like people will seek fame now via less than pleasant means. So to be a shock jock, to be a, you know, you know, particularly controversial pundit will just say deliberately yeah. offensive things for for the hell of it or, or just to say like look at me look at what i'm saying aren't i cool right or internet trolling or even or even sort of just internet arguing just whatever side of the political divide you're on people gain hmm. pleasure from having the perfect zing like the perfect the response that will signal to the rest of your tribe how clever you are and get one over on on the others on the yeah. enemy tribe yeah Definitely. It's, it's a really quite a common thing in that we want to be liked by our group. And that leads to the thing of group polarization, which, again, it's quite common these days in, in, in the political sphere. And that if you have if you are part of a like minded group, it's a well-known psychological phenomenon that if you took like 20 people and asked them their opinion on something controversial, like legalization of cannabis or abortion or something like that, and you probably get a nice mix of varying levels of uh, opinion on either side of the divide. Like some people will want to ban it outright or some people want to make it fully accessible and everything in between. But if you put those people in a group and then let them bond, you'll end up with a more extreme stance than you would if you just combine all the individuals. Because when people bond together as part of a group, they want to be liked by the group, but also want to be high status in that group. So if there's a common point that they're discussing, say if, uh, for example, in Star Wars fandom quite relevant lately, then you wouldn't be a Star Wars fan. That's fine. You have spoken to other Star Wars fans, but you also want to be liked by them, be respected. So you want to make sure that they know you're the biggest Star Wars fan. So you start doing and saying things which are a bit more extreme, uh, a bit more like beyond your usual 
enthusiasm for it. Like, it's like me, I did this. Like crowdfunding the rewrite of Last Jedi. <laughs> yeah. Have you heard well, of I, I was. Yeah, I was building up for that. But yeah, you, you mentioned <laughs> oh, that. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I shouldn't get in trouble. That's. Good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, that, that. Let's be honest. That wouldn't. That, I mean, if you ask someone in the street to do that, they'd say, "What, what is wrong with you? Are you okay?" <laughs> but right. you know, because it's part of the big group, then it becomes like a seemingly logical cause of action. Right, and that, so so sort of what are fairly natural group dynamics and start off with fairly innocent aims, which is just enjoying a thing or identifying with a point of view, ends up sort of chasing an innocent actor off of social media. Yeah, because you want to show everyone that I am the biggest fan of this or whatever it is, or I am the best at this, and that can lead to very extreme outcomes. And I think one of the more benign examples I use was like weight loss groups. They often have the weekly weigh-in to show you – know, it's not just you, – you don't get to weigh yourself in private. you got to do it in front of the group, like so who lost most this week. And that does add a certain extra pressure because you know, people have trouble dieting. It's, it's hard work. Your brain isn't wired to, to prove of abstract – you know, goals over actual tangible benefits. So if you like food, then it's, you can't just tell yourself, I, I want to weigh less because that's not as rewarding for the brain. So uh, extra, extra motivation comes from the social aspect and that, that's really important. I don't want to be disliked by my group. I, want, I don't want to be embarrassed. So I'm going to lose as much weight as possible. So I don't, because I know I'm going to be showing this to everyone in a week or two weeks time. And that's, and that's generally sort of a positive way to use that effect. But and you can see that sort of spiraling. As I want to be the slim of the week this week. I'm going to cut out all dairy. I'm going to cut out all bread stuff. And then someone else goes, no, well, they won last week. I'm going to spend 20 minutes a day on the treadmill. No, I'm going to spend 40. I'm going to spend 60. I'm going to spend two hours. I'm going to spend five hours. And then so you've got a situation then eventually when everyone's trying to be the best. They're sort of jogging on the spot for 12 hours a day, uh-huh. breathing in, breathing kale and shadows. And that's essentially <laughs> their life. And, that, and that's what they do, you know. That's that that that's not something they would have chosen to do of their own volition, but because they're part of a group which all which is all geared towards weight loss, then that becomes the overriding factor. And in order to become dominant in the group, you have to become the most enthusiastic about weight loss. And right. oftentimes, logic goes out the window. Then, and then you, it, this sort of can also spiral into well, like we sort of touched on it with the internet thing, but it, that can even outside of things like internet and just opinions and the way people voice their opinions, it can lead to. Uh, people seeing people outside of their tribal group as less than human as uh which is where war and violence and that kind of thing can often come from definitely yeah like we say we are a social creature but that doesn't mean we social with literally everybody ever we have a sort of a certain group that we identify with be it our family be with our from our neighborhood or our country or our race even obviously that's quite a common thing nowadays right and yeah, then when you're part of a social group, like in back in the olden days on the savannah, when human tribes became dominant and like the environment wasn't really much of a threat to them, the only threat to a human tribe was largely another tribe. So you know, tribes which were a bit more suspicious, a bit more wary of engaging with other tribes were going to be the ones which had the better chance of survival. So that's, a, that's like an instinctive mechanism to not, to not reject the outsiders, but you know, there, there is an underlying quirk or a tick or a bias to say right, right different person i don't i don't know them what do they want i am suspicious uh, but that's easily overridden just by thinking about it. you know it's, it's a, you, could, you could argue it's a it's natural bias just a crap in the street but people don't do that anymore because we know that's wrong and that's you know, so we can't easily change that sort of thing but yeah there is the you know there's an underlying instinct of the brain to be wary of anyone different and when it becomes you know part of your identity that we are this group they are that group 
they are bad, we are good. So anything we do to harm them, um, or anything I do to harm them, shows that I am definitely a big part of the group. So I will do that. And it becomes a big part of your identity, and therefore it becomes part of your core beliefs that the main thing that I want to do is hurt this other group, even if it's at my own expense. And so people like doing things to, quote-unquote, own the libs and doing very (laughs) odd things. You can't be... you can't be enjoying that. That's, that looks unpleasant. Why are you doing that? And, but it becomes and, an addiction in itself. It sort of keeps facilitating that reward system of just hmm. uh, getting people. Uh, well, we and and humor and humor in general. Let's let's get into this a little bit because um, you talked to a few people, a few people that I know personally. Uh, firstly, <laughs> a friend of the show, so, Professor Sophie St- uh, Scott, who's been on here before. Yeah, she, she she's the sort of the go-to. How does humor work in the brain, person? Yeah, essentially. In, in the UK, at least, yes. And uh, you, you sort of talk to her about what, what humor does and how and how important humor is as as a social signal and uh, and for cohesion of social groups. Yeah, and like, again, that's something I was so aware of anyway, but it's it, it becomes something quite profound when you see it crystallized in the scientific sense, in that humans, um, I think one of the things I like discovering was that laughter predates humanity. No, they, chimps laugh too. They've done a sort of vocal spectral analysis and calculated back that our laughter diverged something like 11 million years ago before humans even existed. Right. So, <clears throat> so laughter does predate us. And obviously, and also rats laugh. You know, it's a high pitch. We can't hear it with special machinery, but they do laugh. And I told this to Ian Bolsworth, another comedian I interviewed in the book. And he said, what do rats laugh at? Do they, do they laugh at mice with their stupid big ears? <laughs> that, that's, that's a lovely image. <laughs> Nothing else. Uh-huh. But, yeah, but um, yeah. So, but we've taken the humor side of things, the laughter side, and really sort of spun this whole elaborate uh, social cohesive bonding process out of it because we are we would always want to make people laugh, you know. And laughter is, if you think about it, it's such such a weird thing in terms of it's such a big outward expression of emotion, which most other emotions don't have. You know, if you are angry at someone, you can sometimes yell, but it's not it's not like instinctive. It doesn't actually override all your other fundamentals like like Sophie's got points out herself that if you try to make someone laugh and you know, you get the point where they can't actually breathe the, the brain still prioritizes laughing over breathing and that's 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 dangerous that's bad <laughs> they shouldn't do that and that's you know that's how important it's become to us uh yeah but it is like a very you know it's also involved in mating like a human mating quote unquote rituals and that you know, back in the days of you know personal ads in newspapers you never saw one which said which didn't say gsoh good sense of humor right um again it's, it would be very odd if someone said i would like a bad sense of humor i like someone who's <laughs> yeah, and, and people shit. that is yeah. one of those sentences that really is so vague and open to the personal interpretation it's just what do you really mean is i like someone who has my sense of humor exactly yeah, every everyone has everyone in their i think no one thinks they don't have a sense of humour and no one thinks they don't want someone with a yeah, sense of humour. that's a good point. Like, you'd, never, yeah. you'd very rarely find someone go, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm humourless. They, just, they <laughs> well, would like, just, they'd be more likely to go, yeah, that's not funny, though. That's just stupid. Why are they doing that? Or, yeah, I would kind of like to meet someone who, who openly says, I have a bad sense of humour. Yeah, I, I don't... I, 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 I laugh do at it. men in dresses. That, that, that's it for me. That, that, that'll do nicely. <laughs> Wait, that's bad now? Damn it. <laughs> you, do, you do occasionally get... Um, you do occasionally get people who say, I don't like music, but that, that's still that's a rarity. Crazy. I have heard that, though. Yeah. It's just all music, uh, the entire yeah, concept of it. But, um, but then you, you do talk to a few comedians of varying statuses and varying experiences. Yes, yeah, so, some, mm. some have walked away from comedy. And we've talked about this with an American psychologist before, about theories of humor and also about the trope of comedians being these sad clowns. And um, 
Yeah, I, mm. this is this is this one bit of the book that I I'm not sure I agree with you, or at least I'm I think That's I fine. partially agree with you and partially disagree because you you talk about how stand up in many ways the idea of doing stand up risks huge social rejection and sort of what would it take for a person to do stand up comedy and you, you end up sort of narrowing it down to the two things which is just it's more like if if social rejection is such a big risk with stand up comedy then it's more likely to attract those who are who aren't as bothered by the possibility so either people with an unshakable sense of self confidence or people who are desensitized to social rejection because they're used to it the oddballs the outsiders which um but I think you're missing... I, I don't know. I, I feel like the, there's the third factor, which you then actually get into later with Barry Dodds and his love of mm. uh, his love of horror movies and horror and that kind of thing. And that's... Mm. I, I, think it, I think the third factor in there is people who don't necessarily have the unassailable self-confidence or the... Or, but do enjoy the risk uh, in a controlled factor. Like, I, I can yeah. tell you from personal experience, the scarier the gig, the more the adrenaline rush afterwards, the more the more nerve-wracking the potential failure is, or the, more, the, the yeah. higher the potential failure is, the more exhilarating the gig is when it goes well. Yeah, that's definitely, it's also, you know, it's back to the whole investment and effort and reward thing. Like, if I, it's a big risk here, but if I do it and it pays off, then that's massive reward, I'm going to really quite enjoy that right um yeah there, there is something i sort of wanted to get into but i think when i when i sent the humor chapter back in my editor he said dean this is about five times longer than all the others and most of this isn't relevant oh, <laughs> all right, I, I was wondering how much <laughs> yeah, about yeah, that because this is sort of that you, you talk it's the humor is sort of the humor section of the book is divided into two halves i think where you're talking about the social aspect of yeah. humor and then you're in this, and then you're talking about people who deliver humor professionally and if, if that's the this is the bit of the book that you have the mo- it's sort of the the center of the venn diagram of you yeah essentially i, I, I had a lot to say about this and as my editor said like, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're happy but this isn't really the point of the book <laughs> i guess so yeah like you know so should i take my recipes out as well yes <laughs> those can go too um so yeah so that, that was like you know, it, it's hard when you sort of get into a get into a groove and then you, you end up saying stuff you wanted to, or looking at stuff you wanted to talk about and but that, that is a sort of part of it too like i i i always wanted to do stand up myself and or i have done i've done it now i've been doing it for quite a while but yeah i always wanted to do it but i felt it was too much of a too much of a challenge too too much of a risk i was always too scared of it because i you know i wasn't confident for myself to to do it i didn't think i would get away with it and i was just just scared just right scared of it and that was that was before I spent two years embalming corpses for a living, and that <laughs> that does that does shift your stance on what you will put up with and what you, you find. You sort of realise, oh, what's the worst? Literally, I've just spent the last two years looking at the worst case scenario. This is yeah. Look, I'm saying like worst case scenario in a comedy gig, nobody laughs. They are still breathing. It's still a step up for me. That exactly. Was, that, well, that's like, what got me into it. Then again, corpses don't heckle, so it's it's two sided, sort of, right? No, well, like, like I do say, I actually did practice my routine in my first routine in the room of corpses, <laughs> thinking it would be good practice for having a totally stony cold reception uh, <laughs> and did my first ever set and someone did laugh and I shit myself so that was uh, <laughs> you know, kind of counterproductive but um, yeah, <laughs> we live and learn I, I, I wonder how much of sort of I, I think talking to my comic friends it, it as much of the sort of risk of comedy is like the overcoming of social rejection that risk and then survival it's also controlling of social rejection it's sort of like I'll get the retaliation in first. I can, 
I, I have these fears mm. about myself, but if I stand in front of 200 people and get them out before they can and get laughs on my terms for it, that's sort of... Con- that's overcoming that social... That's sort of getting one over on the possibility of social rejection, which is such a strong motivator. Definitely, yeah. And I, I sort of oftentimes see it. I think Johnny Vegas says it in a similar way, but it's, it's almost like a form of self-medication for some people. Like, I, I'm always being... No, I've, no, I don't fit in with the rest of society, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to put myself out there deliberately. Right. And if I, and if I have... We feel like with, although people that find comedy so terrifying, or the idea of doing stand up such a again because of the risk of social rejection, because of the idea that you could be up there and not get any laughs. But that's like that's that's like the negative side. But the positive positive side is you have a room full of people who quote unquote have to listen to you or are willing to listen to you, and that's not something you get in normal everyday life. Like you you are, you are in control of room. You are the highest status person there for for however long you last. You know. It, could be 20 seconds it could be it could be like four hours it could be 20 years depends on how good you are but the idea that you can stand in front of people and they will listen to you because that's the whole point of the evening that that's quite that's quite appealing to a lot of people right and then and then it just the the fact that uh just speaking in the most common types of phobias are social phobias you said so hmm. that logically implies people fear social rejection more than things like snakes and spiders which potentially Generally, can yes. actually harm you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, phobias by and large aren't logical. That's sort of like the point, and that they they're a fear response beyond rational requirement. You know, Cause like people who have arachnophobia, they will flip out at the sign of a tiny spider. Like a, a little like one pence size spider across the room isn't going to leap across the room and tear your throat out, but right. they react as if it will. Uh, same with snakes. Like you know, a small snake in the other side of a field is relatively benign but you tell that someone's afraid of snakes they'll climb the nearest tree and set fire to the ground and just hope for the best and that's <laughs> because that seems like a logical response to them whereas yeah so social phobias i think it's because there's so many different ways in which they can manifest too like we so much of what we do in our daily lives involves interact with other people in some way i mean i'm really bad at speaking on the phone uh, still even from day one because even though I have to do it a lot now, and, and when I do in the you know, the corpse embalming job, I had to speak to recently bereaved relatives and say, "Can we have the body?" Which, Oof. again, another baptism of fire. Wow! Yeah, <laughs> you quickly brush up on your phone skills in that job. I tell you, you can't just like. I would have thought that's say, hey, jobs. That's, uh... Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a very you know it was a very uh, steep learning curve, but it you know, it's still it's still odd because I, I I don't like the fact that you can't see someone else's face. I don't like how you. There's no visual cues there for how they're reacting, and that's something that's always unsettled me. But there's no reason for it. There's no harm to it whatsoever. Literally, they're far away. They can't do anything about it, even if I do you know, want to say something less than ideal to them. So yeah, the, the social phobias are very common because social socialization is very common. Yeah. So then, as far as the comedians go, the ones you talked to who had quit comedy, did you seem to think part of that is that maybe this was uh, fulfilling almost an addiction, and their tolerance got to a point they couldn't satiate it or talk some more about that if you if you don't mind yeah of course um well one of them uh, wes wes packer good friend of mine he's um you know, he, he's sort of he's had a few goals at comedy but his own mental health issues and life circumstances meant that he couldn't really he never really made it as big as he perhaps should have done because i don't think he's one of the best and but he said he, he got the point where he was you know, he, he compared it to a, a literal addiction like a drug addiction like the whole idea of driving to a gig for four hours and then doing 20 minutes. And that's like the equivalent of going to find your dealer in a seedy part of town and getting the accoutrements and shooting up. And that time on stage, that's the, that's the hit. That's the part which gives you that, that rush. And, and that was that was good, but it kept him going. 
but you can see it reflected in other facts of life. Like remember you said he did the Just for Laughs festival and um, uh, sort of had a huge response there, went really well, then came back on Monday morning and his boss called him in the office to talk about Excel spreadsheets and he just couldn't muster the enthusiasm for it because after that sort of exposure, why would you? Like you've, you've, you've grown, or he has, or I argue anyone would grow extremely tolerant to that sort of interaction, that sort of rush you get from having that sort of approval from you, your audience, audiences of people. Yeah, yeah. And and you know, when you know, having a sort of meets the expectations of the performance review doesn't quite have the same impact anymore. Uh, um, well, I, I'd love we, we're running out of time, but I would love to chat a little bit about um, the effect of childhood and adolescence. And I ha- hadn't also realized how different childhood and adolescence are in terms of how the brain responds to things, hmm. uh, and even. Well, one of the things that surprised me, one of the little neuroscience gems I picked away, I came away from this book with, was the fact that your brain has fewer connections as you get older. It yeah, but that's always one thing. Yeah, well, that's one which we just surprise people. Um, it's like you know, the estimate I found in the book is that when you're born to age two, your brain is forming a million new connections every second. So it's like a essentially like a massive data sponge, just soaking up everything because you know, when you're born, you're not a blank slate, but you not far off one so you know you try to absorb everything and anything that goes on uh, so children are very curious they, they learn by doing learn by observing everything goes in uh, because like their brains aren't quite aware of what's needed yet what's important and it's trial and error and time is, you know, picks up stuff um so when we hit adolescence uh, say age 13 14 your brain's essentially full of massive connections like you know, example like like a, a laptop home screen full of icons there's nothing but error all over the place and when that happens you go right this is confusing get rid of most of these i just need the ones i you know i, I use and that's what the brain's essentially doing it's saying right i've got all this clutter here got it's, it's been hoarding for like a, a decade i don't need all this which ones do i need because then, then i can dedicate my precious resources to those and it gets rid of connections and memories and things you've learned which you don't need anymore so the you know, the fourteen year old brain will have far fewer connections than a six year old brain. I've actually got a slide in my, one of my talks about it, right. and it's you know, it's weird to think that the, the older the brain gets, the you know, the more organised it gets, the, the the less connected it is. But it's not it's not about connections; it's about efficiency. Uh, and you and you also talk about um, sort of teenage rebellion, and this is something I uh, hadn't occurred to me at all before. But the fact that the difference between impulsivity and risk taking, the fact that teenagers get mislabeled as impulsive which is what children actually are whereas teenagers are risk take risk takers mm. yeah because like children will stick their finger in a plug socket because like what does this do ow and that that sort of thing that's that's impulsive you know then what's that i leak that place all of this like you know that's that's impulsive right they don't know the outcome they're going to see they're going to do it and see what happens uh, risk taking is you know that this is not a good idea or like potentially could have bad consequences but you do anyway because teenagers always and it's always drummed into them you know don't you know, don't smoke don't drink underage don't have you know yeah. unprotected sex don't, don't race do motorbikes all that kind of thing <laughs> yeah don't don't wear leather jackets you know don't punch duke boxes and all those other <laughs> weird cliches from the old days comb your but, hair with a knife you know the things that teenagers yeah. do <laughs> yeah of course <laughs> typical teenage behaviors and like, but they they do these anyway because they know like it's, I, I, I imagine sometimes just the risk itself, which is part of the thrill, is sort of stimulating. I'm not supposed to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway because no one tells me what to do. Right, which, and, which yeah, may so, have a, a which may have an evolutionary advantage. You're saying because that might be the that might be one of the things that drives historical humans, our ancestors, just to sort of escape the tribe and reproduce yeah. with a more varied gene pool. 
Yeah, because if you look at it one way, it's, a lot of it comes down to the fact that the brain matures, but it matures unevenly. So the more simple, older parts of the brain mature faster because there's less to do, essentially, than the more high-functional, conscious, cognitive parts of the brain, like the frontal lobe. So the limbic system in the, in the centre of the brain, which controls like our impulsive and our, our wants and our drives and our basic urges, that matures faster than the frontal cortex, which is where all the logic and rationalisation and forward planning comes in. Though that bit still works. I think studies show that teenagers can think just as logically as any adult. It's just that as a result of the limbic system maturing faster, they are more vulnerable to emotional stimulation. So like emotional stimulation hits them harder than it would a fully mature adult whose brain has gone through all that process. So like teenagers can think perfectly logically, but there's a lot more emotional distraction going on. And the analogy I use is like trying to fill in your tax return in the middle of a nightclub. You know, we're trying to say, yeah. <laughs> like, what, what, what am I going to this? Is this VAT? It's really, it's really hard to, you know, it's hard to get do anything done in that context. Right. And it does seem like that would be just a, you know, just a fluke or quirk of you know, an unfortunate result of the evolutionary process. But the fact is, like chimps and rats, they have the same thing. Adolescents have this weird period it does seem to have an evolutionary purpose because when you think that you're a child you've grown up in the safe environment of your tribe and your family uh you know the logical thought would be well I'll, it's safe i'll stay here I, I, I don't need to go further afield but you're at hit adolescence you want autonomy you want novelty you want to take risks and your parents are the ones telling you no don't do that because they spent your entire life doing that like they've gone from being caregiver to barrier and then they become sort of a hindrance to what you want rather than the main conduit by which you experience the world. And therefore, that, that whole rebellious streak, that's like, screw you, I'm going, that that becomes evolutionarily useful. Like, I'm, I'm leaving, I'm getting out of here, and you go and join another tribe, and then you know, the DNA gets swapped around, and you spread, you know, the species spreads and diversifies, and that's that's good, that's evolutionarily very useful. So, yeah, it is an, you know, it, it seems to be of an evolved purpose, which is uh, not... Not good for any parents out there, but you know, it's, right? Because you, you also talked about the, the, the earlier stage. How much, how important for your later happiness, uh, your childhood is, and how much of your brain develop because of how uh, much of your brain development happens in those early years. How much is sort of implanted in you in the future you in those formative first years on Earth? Yeah, um, because like that's when the brain's basically setting up shop. It's. Uh, Think of the brain as a house, it's laying the foundations. If the foundations are shoddy, then the rest of the house is going to have a bit more trouble. It's going to need a lot more work, a lot more care, a lot more effort to maintain it. And that's why people from disrupted homes or terrible environments, they have a lot more trouble later in life maintaining happiness and well-being. I spoke to a GP recently who's been doing it for like now 40 years in the UK and she said, like, someone came into her office recently, like, he was the child of a mother I, I saw 25 years earlier, where she tried to say, like, you shouldn't have this child. You are clearly a danger to yourself and to others. And as a result, she saw him come, yep, he's got all the classic signs of, you know, he's totally depressed. He's got no men, mental health you know, stability at all. And you can see it happening. It's, it's quite a reliable system in that if you don't have any you know, solid bedrock in the early years of your life, then... Later on, you, you're going to suffer the consequences of that. And that's why you know, a good childhood is it's not key. You can get around these things, but it's, it's really important. It's really useful. Right. Um, well, well like, yeah. like with any of these things, it sort of seems like that there is no... I mean, obviously, you know, going into this even, there is no one factor if that causes it. It is about the balance of all these things. And there is there is nothing that fundamentally can make you happy or unhappy, but there are 
multiple factors that have to be in the right balance safety and security versus stimulation various brain chemicals in their various moderation human relationships but not too much of the human relationships and so on mm. yeah balance is a big part of it like the brain does have uh, it seems to be uh, riddled with systems which are like at a midpoint between two extremes like even like the visual processing system is like black and white visual receptors and yellow and blue and like there's a balance between these two which are you know which determine what we see and that extends up the high level too so you need novelty but not too much of it you know you you need uh, unpredictability but you need to have also some reliability too you need to have you need to have social engagements you need your privacy as well so yeah the happiness exists in that real sweet spot between the, the, the extremes of what the brain will put up with um we we're, we're running out of time and there's there's so much of the book that we didn't even come <laughs> close to covering i mean for a start the huge amount of writing in the book on both sex and relationships which yeah, is that's a, that's a, which i can't believe we somehow managed to <laughs> yeah, how did we skip that <laughs> this on is our podcast? That's this the... is entirely i'm showing my priorities there i will skip over sex and just go straight to stand-up comedy let's talk about that <laughs> i can i can see now how your editor also had to like scale you back on the stand-up section <laughs> Sounds like my career plan at the time. <laughs> <laughs> but so, uh, but what? What? Before we go, what? What were the biggest surprises for you? What? What did the, you discovered writing this book? What sort of shocked you the most? And what was your? And also, what was your biggest takeaway? What was the, from this journey that you went on? Um, I think I, back to the sex relationship stuff. I mean, I don't want to. Obviously, can't have time to go into too much, too much now, but we've, we've got a little bit of time to, if you if you want to go into yeah. stuff. Yeah, well, um, again, there's lots of elements to it, but I, I did speak to Dr. Petra Boynton, the um, you know, social psychologist, relationship expert in the UK, who's like really highly qualified psychology uh, lecturer and researcher, and she, and, she sort of she, has your job when it comes to any sex questions. She's like the sort of person who gets yeah. brought into debunk slash explain from a scientific basis various any sex and relationship related stories that happen in the news yeah essentially that's that's a lot in life and i think she's embraced it which is good uh but she so i said like what what is like the the main problem when it comes to like obviously love and relationships that are a big part of what, what what we think makes us happy and the whole happily ever after cliche and you know you find the one and all that and settle down and all those things and she said you know it's all about the you know the, the ideas of the relationship model that you know, we we seem to aspire to in this in Western society, at least, the whole you know meet someone and move in together, then get married, then have children, then move to the country. Like it's kind of rigid. It's the relationship escalator, and it's it's always like face. It always looks towards um, between one man and one woman. That's a that's sort of a, a standard heterosexual relationship. And this idea of like that's how relationships should work is more cultural than biological. So there's no there is obviously a big part of it in the biology too, but. Uh, you know, there's the way we see it in the society seems to be a bit too strict, and that causes people a lot of stress. Like if they're not cut out for that, they're not just wired in a way which responds well to that sort of arrangement, causes a lot of stress and discomfort and unhappiness. And I spoke to a girl on the net, the uh, the sex blogger who I'm kind of good friends with now for various reasons, and she that sounded a lot more dodgy than it was actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're, uh, we're literally just friends, and. But she said exactly the same thing based on her like various sexual exploits. She came to the exact same conclusion that the way we live with relationships in our, in our society is a bit too rigid, a bit too restrictive, and a bit more of a loose and forgiving approach would be a lot more stress-free and make people a lot happier. So it's weird for them to both come to the exact same conclusion from completely different perspectives and coming at it from completely different angles. So that was interesting. And 
you know, the extent to which we are such social creatures and that in fact it's driven our evolution. That was cool to find out. And all the stuff about balances, that was quite quite intriguing too, that you know, there are so many, it's, it's, it's a dynamic process and we don't just have one thing. The idea of having one thing and making you happily ever after, that's one thing I wanted to take away from the book too, which I quite like, is that that's not a thing. That can't really be said to be how the brain works. It's, yeah. it's a static yeah. organ and life is constantly going on around you. Right, you sort of so, even mentioned the fact that even the thing that makes you happy as a child won't make you happy as an adolescent, won't make you happy as a adult. Even the thing that made you happy five minutes ago might not make you happy in 10 minutes from now. Yeah, because the brain's constantly changing. You know, it habituates, it adapts, it changes, it modifies, it adjusts. And life itself is constantly happening, constantly going around. You're not the same person you were two years ago. So why would the same stuff not automatically make you happy? And this idea that you can be permanently happy, like default happy, that I think is a potentially harmful one because you can't really. Happiness is an active process. The brain needs energy and resources in order to make us happy. It's, it's a reward for something good happening. But anyway, so it shouldn't be constantly on it's like you know, if you say to someone i'll pay you a hundred dollars to build my shed or i'll pay you a hundred dollars not to do that then they'll they won't do it because like well why would i that's so if everything if everything makes you happy then nothing technically makes you happy so you're not really motivated to do anything and right. that's a bad way to be and, uh, <laughs> yeah so yeah so the idea that lasting permanent happiness is is a goal i, I would argue that's not not a helpful one because there are plenty of good reasons to be unhappy uh, you know, because of what goes on in your life and because of what's going on inside you, and uh, to tell someone you can be happily easily and you should be happy all the time, that's unfair and not helpful. So, yeah, that, that would be one takeaway I would like people to take from the book. But, you know, if you've already paid for it, I guess it's up to you, really, what you do with it. <laughs> <laughs> it's your property now. I can't, I can't stop you. That, that seems like a perfect place to edit. Um, a, a, lot, a lot of the people listening to this have not yet paid for it. So we will link to that book and also Idiot Brain, which is uh, your first book. We'll link to those both in the show notes and on probablyscience.com. But thank you so much for taking the time to Skype in. Thanks for staying up late for us so we could do oh, without time me. difference. Yeah, I appreciate it as well. Cheers, guys. Thank you. Cool. So that was Dean Burnett. That was over the Skype. I hope that audio sounded good. It sounded okay at our end. And like I say, the book, we'll put the links. Uh, you can find it as well through your book purchaser of choice, but it's called Happy Brain. His first book is called Idiot Brain. Check those out. We'll thank all the, uh, we got some donors and that kind of thing. We'll thank next week. On the 300th episode. Holy shit. I know. We didn't do enough planning. We were hoping to do it live somehow, but uh, we're still hoping we can get some some fun surprises for long-time listeners together. Is it too late to source something out live? It probably I mean, maybe, is. You never know. We could, maybe we could just we could do a gathering. Maybe we'll do it as a flash mob. How about we ask anybody who's in LA who listens, can you tweet at Probably Science and let us know if you would come to a live show if it happened next week? <laughs> if you have zero notice and no other arrangements going on in your life, if you would possibly go, and if so, what day? This is the first time a show has been arranged around what day possible audience members are free. I, actually, I think that's a thing that's happening more. Is that? Now. Uh, it's sort of like the Paul F. Tompkins 300 thing he used to do, where he would just put out a thing saying, if you can get 300 people in a town to agree to come to a show, then I'll come to a show there. That's good. So, Let's uh, do that, but we're like six. If you yeah. can get six people. If six people will come out to a show midweek next week somewhere in LA, we will we How many people? At doing how many people do you think we need to get as potential audience members before we move it out of your living room and into <laughs> a private venue? You know, I wouldn't even be against having people over my place if they were real fans, if, that, if we could somehow vet them. Well, maybe let me think about that let me think about that a little bit um but no seriously you can see the medals <laughs> i moved the medals around so now they're intermingled with the uh lanyards they don't look as does that make it less ostentatious or 
I don't know. I think <laughs> I just gotta take them down. No, I like them. Okay, everyone likes them. But um, yeah, seriously, tweet at probably science if you have any interest in a live show, we'll or see e- if- email us probably science at gmail dot com yeah. as well. And um, yeah, we will see you next week. Thanks again. Thank you. Bye. Bye.